This is the MFG Cast. Hey guys, welcome to another fantastic episode of the MFG Cast live on our YouTube channel. It's gonna be a little creepy this time. A creepy. No, sorry, that was terrible. Sorry, it's been a long day. You know, I just feel like you know every episode now I just have to do something really stupid to begin with, and you know what? I don't feel bad about it one bit. I don't feel bad about it one bit. I was, I was gonna say that's a good justification. That's yeah. why you're doing it because of the show, not because yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> not because I'm weird or anything. It's because of the show. Come on, the viewers that's, expected. They demanded. That's right. That's right. They know. They know what they're getting into. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. I'm Kurt. This is D Wyatt. This is Kim. And we I'm have got from Think Oh, jeez! Now ah, I just cut you off. I cut you off now. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> People expect more. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they really don't. I've heard their views, Kirk. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, thanks, Sean, for coming on. We, we've we talked through the internets a ton of times. We've actually reviewed one of your games, and this is the first time we've actually come to talk to you. I mean, I mean, this is ridiculous. It should have been a long time ago. <laughs> I'm always, uh, always available, always uh, welcome to talk to people. I've had a really good relationship with you guys over the, over the internets, so it's really cool to meet everybody in, in face-to-face. Yeah, definitely. So let's go. Let's go through through. Let's go through the obligatory question of how did you get into this whole hobby? Wow. Uh, so I've been in the games industry for, geez, twenty plus years now. I started off in the video game world, working at Electronic Arts, doing video game testing, uh, and just kind of worked my way up through there. Um, I've been a tabletop gamer all my life, even as a you know little kid playing the the crappy games, you know, like the Garfield board game and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there was a few standouts like uh, like Dungeon. That was a big one that left a big impact on me and, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I've always had this fascination and interest in it. And uh, doing work as a producer in video game space, um, I wanted to kind of get back into designing things since I was mostly leading teams. And one day I just kind of like, you know what, I've been playing Magic for 15 years. Uh, let's just try. And I came up with an idea. I'm like, let's just put this together and see if it works. And it's just kind of been snowballing from there. Now, real quick, I heard you say Magic for 15 years. Control decks, aggro decks, what were you running? A little bit of everything. So that's that kind of dovetails into why I'm doing what I do now because I realized what I really liked most about Magic was designing decks. Like, I would find some really weird card, like, um, oh gosh, one of the golems that makes it so that you can't play a creature card when it's out in front of you. And, like, how do how do we build a deck around that idea where you can take that card, give it to another player, screw them over, and then just keep wailing on them with stuff, you know, and try and, like, you know, prevent them from attacking with it. 
and and just screw them over and just like trying to like take all those unique things that the magic system has and creating experiences with them. I wouldn't always like make these monster awesome decks. They were always intricate and weird and interesting. So uh, I kind of like realized, wait a minute, I'm basically game designing within the magic sphere. Why don't I try actually making games instead of just doing stuff for myself? <laughs> Pretty cool. So how did you get into working for EA Games then as a tester? Is it one of those things like I remember back in the day they had those websites where it was always like, oh, do this today, do that today, you know, and you send an email and like never hear from them again. I mean, how did you get into that whole thing? Uh, actually, my background is in computer animation and design. Uh, I went to the Vancouver Film School up in uh, Vancouver, B.C., and that was about a 10-month-long project. And uh, we did stuff like uh, modeling and designing and uh, animation, uh, film animation, as well as life drawing, like the whole kind of spiel, right? It was kind of a shotgun approach to just um, working in the artistic industry uh, with computers and whatnot. And I came out of that, and I came back down to Seattle, and I originally started getting looking for a job as a modeler or animator, and there weren't a ton of openings. There's quite a few game companies in Seattle, but at that time, there just weren't a ton of openings for that position. So um, Electronic Arts had an opening as a tester, and they're like, you know, you have some skill or some background with, with video games, you know, from just knowledge. You seem to understand art and those sort of things. We'd like to have you on as a tester. I'm like, um, sure, okay, that's cool. I, I want to be in this industry, so... Start somewhere. So, yeah, so I just uh, started doing that, working in at Seattle Electronic Arts back when it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first started, was it like just like, oh, this is going to be the best thing in the world? And it, it ended up being the worst thing in the world. <laughs> was it actually worth a damn? Uh, it was very interesting and eye-opening. I'm certainly glad I did it because I wouldn't be here where I am you know, without that. But... Uh, I think there's a, there's an expectation from people that, oh, if you're a tester, you get to play games all day. Like, well, you're going to be playing the same game all day, and you're going to be doing that for you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, working in one level, trying to you know, make this crazy thing happen. So it's a lot different than what people kind of expect. Um, but getting to, to see those like early stages of development uh, and start learning the jargon and all that kind of stuff was incredibly helpful. So it was time well spent. It was, uh, we, we had to go through some really horrible games. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, tell me some of those horrible games. Cause I'm the interested. Worst one was this game called rushdown. And there were, I think three or four different modes. There was uh, bicycling downhill, canoeing downhill. I think uh, skiing downhill. You're seeing a theme here. Uh, and, <laughs> Everything downhill. Yeah, everything's just downhill. Like, you're going and you're racing. Like, whatever. Okay, fine. The gameplay was just meh. But take a meh experience and play through that 8 to 10, 12 hours a day over the course of months. You're like, I'm going to stab myself with a knife. <laughs> where's, the, where's the controller? I'm going to just beat myself over the head with it. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. It's like, I it's like how, how, how amazing could, like, trying to find out how a canoe goes down river, you know, Right, so you're like you're you're bunting up against the the sides of the river and trying to do weird things, trying to like jump out and just doing everything you can to like not win and just break the game. And I asked my lead at the time, like, why are we working on this game? It's crap. And he's like, oh yeah, they know it's garbage, but 
they bought it for a low amount and they know they can put it out there and get, you know, X amount back. So, you know, it's it's not going to be a AAA game. They know that, but it's just enough to kind of keep padding the coffers. Well, yeah. okay. Because grandma doesn't know any better when it comes to Christmas time gifts. <laughs> yep, exactly. Like, oh, look, oh. there's bicycles. My kid likes bicycles. I'm buying this game. Your kid's going to hate you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like when, when one of, when, uh, my wife's mom got uh, Logan uh, Shoots and Ladders, but it was superhero. Awesome. I haven't played Shoots and Ladders 52 times, but now it's got Colossus on it. Wee! <laughs> uh, lots of fun. They also like got, they brought me into uh, working on one of the first automobile-focused MMOs, uh, this game called Motor City Online. And I got to work as a production assistant. Basically, I got to go around and take pictures of cars and meet all, like, all the old school like hot rods, you know, the, the Cudas and the, the Challengers and Chargers and all that kind of stuff. And they were basically looking at cars from the 50s up through the late 70s and creating all this stuff. And they would have to go and mic up cars and, you know, listen to the engine sounds and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of fun. But the other thing was that working on that game in the very early stages, uh, you got to see how how weird and broken multiplayer online stuff could be. Like, uh, you'd be going along racing in your car, and all of a sudden, like, some other car would come by, like, in the air, on fire, kind of twirling, like, what the hell is That's amazing. No one's ever going to see that in a regular game. But I got to see this crazy cool thing happen. So I kind of like that aspect of, of, of testing, just seeing all the really weird crap that nobody ever intended. I was going to say, unless you work at Obsidian and then you do still leave a few of those things in there anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like all the Skyrim and uh, Fallout videos that you find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that Burning Man f- floating in the air, you know, right. the same thing, you know, except for it's a man. And you're like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> That's awesome. So when it when it come to, came to the testing and stuff like that, it, you, you know, was it something, are you the kind of person that was like, okay, I want to know everything from the inside out? You know, or was it something where, you know, you were like, well, I'll just learn the learn the things as I go and kind of go from there. You know, how does your mindset happen when it comes to your testing and stuff like that? Because I'm sure what you started with in that probably came into how you're making your game, making and kind of breaking your games, too. Yeah, Um, it was definitely we're trying to understand how something worked, why something was supposed to be the way it was supposed to be like, okay, well, these are this is the rule set for this game. What are they looking for? And you start kind of understanding, okay, this is where the designers are going for. This is why they're setting these these parameters up the way they are. And are there ways that we can break those parameters so, you know, that the designers didn't kind of expect? And there's usually lots of loopholes like that. And that I think that experience kind of like helped push me into uh, being a producer because I, I wanted to have a little more control over working with all the different different uh, elements of the whole production. While I liked the art side of stuff, it wasn't my strong suit. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. Like, I was an okay artist. But I really dug into the taking the, the puzzle of what that game was, right? And kind of like pulling it apart and, and understanding how things fit together and why they fit together and things like that. So then how did you come into, you know, making your own games? Obviously, you've been playing games for a long time. You know, what made, you know, how did all of a sudden did you make the decision, like, 
I want to, you know, I want to make a game, but I also want to lose a lot of money up front. But then also, <laughs> hopefully, I'll make a bunch of money eventually. You know, right. how, what was your mindset? So I was working as a producer at my my current job. Uh, I do uh, games for the iPad and the iPhone, and it was a it was over Christmas break. My wife was sick, and we went out of town, so I had to kind of like take care of her and all the stuff that she normally does. And we got back from break, and I'm like, I talked to my boss. I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. I had no break. <laughs> my mind is fried. I don't feel like I can, you know, kind of do the job well uh, as you know, the expectation. And he's like, sure, you know, just go ahead and take a couple extra days off. You know, that that's cool. Just relax at home or whatever. So uh, I basically did, you know, the first week back at work. And then that Friday I went home and my brain kind of realized, hey, wait, we don't have to think about work. We don't have to worry about the the family or all the other craziness that was going on. We can just like relax. And so I went to went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I had this dream basically of a game and the basic framework of how it would work would work and be put together. And as I was getting up showering, like, oh, that was kind of weird, kind of interesting. And uh, the more I kept thinking about it, kind of turning it over my head and thinking about the different interactions and I was like, this, there's something here, I think. And like, I actually want to try and put this together. Um, by this point, I've actually been playing tabletop games quite a bit. So I went out and I bought some blank cards and I just put everything together and made all the cards and sat down with some friends like, let's let's play this. Let's see if it's interesting. And it was. It was you know incredibly broken and unbalanced and all that kind of stuff. But there was something that was fun about it. I'm like, okay, this... You, this person, you know, that is going to be bluntly honest with me, uh, was like, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. So, like, sure, let's just keep pursuing this and, and turning it over, and yeah, that's where we are. So, what was your what was your philosophy when you first started, you know, making your own company? Because I, I feel like you know everybody has their own like way they want to do things, you know, because you know some people go, okay, I want to make nice you know, crunchy board games, kind of like Euro board games. I want to kind of keep going that direction. Some people say I want nice light games that anybody can play, you know, what was, you know, going into it and has it changed? Because obviously you've been doing this for a while, you know, is it something that's been consistent or has it changed over the years? I think it's, it's been pretty consistent. The one consistent thing has been, I want to put out games that have player interaction in them. I'm less interested as a designer and a publisher for putting out games that are basically multiplayer solitaire. Splendor's a fun game. You know, I enjoy it. What's the other one? Uh, Century Road. Love that game, but it's not something that I would see Thing 12 putting out because there's just there's no player interaction, right? So when I'm doing anything or if I'm looking at someone else's game, I'm looking to find out, how do players interact? Uh, and not necessarily, I'm not really into co-op either. Like the thing that I think is more interesting that has the chance to have these like huge highs and lows in gaming are games where we're competing against each other. And so all of our stuff is kind of in that vein. And uh, I'm definitely not opposed to uh, heavier games. In fact, there's a couple that I've uh, got some designer notes on that are like way down the road, but um, you know more like you know worker placement kind of stuff. But they have elements where you're interacting, and 
the the way we got into more casual stuff, like a lot of the things we've been publishing right now have all been on the casual side. Uh, really quick to play, easy to teach. Uh, you can sit down with anybody and play. Uh, that came about from our first Kickstarter, which which failed. Um, we only hit about 50% of the funding that we needed. And when we, we sent out a survey to backers going, okay, guys, we didn't fund. What were your concerns? What were the things that stuck out to you? It was like why I wouldn't back it or things that give you pause. And they came back with two things. First was you're new, so we don't know that we can trust you. Uh, to actually del- deliver on what you've said you're going to deliver. Okay, that's fair. Um, and then two, they said that the price point was too high for what it was. Okay, so we took a step back and we started thinking, well, what's something that we can do that's smaller, low risk, uh, easier for people to go, you know what, if I'm giving up $10, $15, that's not a huge amount, it's not a big risk for me. Um, and at that same time, serendipitously, uh, my buddy Badger, uh, who was working with me at the time, uh, he came up and was like, hey, check this game out that I made. I, I 3D printed this dice game uh, based on, you know, kind of loosely based on Game of Thrones. And we sat down and played it. I'm like, dude, I like this. This is really cool. I could really see doing something with this. I'd like to publish this game. This would work out perfectly for what we're wanting. Something that's inexpensive. Uh, something that I think we can teach to just about anybody, you know, and it fits each of those categories we were looking for. And uh, sure enough, you know, Dice of Crowns was a huge hit for us, and we just kind of keep moving that that mark forward. That's awesome. With this game that you've got coming out, you're the lead designer in it. Right. And in the last couple that you've had, it's your buddy Badger. So what, what made you decide to for you to come up with this on your own and not go with Badger again. And also, you've got you've got two. Why not make a trilogy? I mean, come on. You've got the crowns. You've got the pirates. Why not make uh, <laughs> dice uh, farming? I don't know. You know, one of those. It's two points. Okay, so let me touch the first one. So um, this is actually going to be the second game that I've designed uh, that we'll put out. Uh, the first one that I did was Click, Click, Boom. Oh, yeah, that's right. My bad. So this one, I know, don't worry. As far as dice of the dice of world, there is this is a trilogy, and we do have nice. a third game that we're working on. We haven't uh, spoiled about what it is yet, but uh, the the thing is kind of in progress. It's really early stages. We're going back and forth on what the mechanics, how they work out well, because there's some certain key design pillars that are very important for the dice of world. Mainly that you have dice that you share back and forth, you, know, you give back and forth to people. Um, also, the rule of three, those are the, the two key things. So he's got a little bit of a box to work in uh, with those. And then we're we're trying a couple other things with that as well. So that's definitely something that we're working on. Why I started working on this, it's kind of a funny story. Um, so when I first came up with this game, it was, oh gosh, was it even before Dice of Crowns? or maybe just after Dice of Crowns, I, I had this idea of high concept. I've got something that you want, and you've got something that I want. Those things aren't worth very much to either of us, but we know that we can get something bigger for them because that other player wants it, right? So that sounded interesting to me as a concept in a game. So um, I 
went home and mocked up some cards real quick and tried it out. And it wasn't fun at all. It was a complete failure. Uh, and for me to, to pursue a design, I'm not going to like chase the fun. Um, if I put out a quick concept and I, and I play it and like, this isn't fun. I'm just, I'm shelving it. I'm not even going to bother looking at it a second time because I need to find that spark of fun. I don't care if something's unbalanced. Is it fun? This wasn't. So tossed it in my designer box and just forgot all about it for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And we were going to a, a game day and I got in there and I was getting some stuff that we needed. And I saw these cards sitting there and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I remember this game. God, that sucked. Ugh. And I had this moment of clarity that was like, wait, wait, I know how to fix this. I, th I think this would work. And like this, you know, this flash appeared. And so I grabbed the cards real quick and I ran to the table and I mocked them up real quick. And, and we went to the, the game night and I'm like, okay, before we play anything, we got to sit down and play this. Cause I got to find out if this works. Like I think it might. And we played it and like, sure enough, it was fun. There was something there way unbalanced, but that, that spark of fun and interesting was right where I wanted it to be. So I thought it was really interesting that a game that was a complete failure uh, from the fun aspect was able to kind of come around and turn into something a lot more engaging, a lot more interesting. Yeah. I like the idea of, you know, not scrapping that stuff. Cause I'm sure there's, I'm sure no matter who you talk to, there's probably like eight different things that like, Oh, I tried it out and it just, I, you know, I just gave up on it, thrown it away. You know, it, it, you know, either sat on a shelf or got lost in the trash, you know, cause it got thrown there or whatever, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, it just, you know, it's just like any, anything that's artistic, you know, it, just because it doesn't work now doesn't mean it won't work later. Like, like you said, you won't just come up with something, you know, like I'm working on something myself. And, you know, I had that thing too, where I was like, every time I kept going back to it, I'm like, God, this is awful. I'm like, who's going to want that, you know? <laughs> and then finally, just out of the blue, like, it was just one of those things where I was just, I was at work. It was early in the morning. They say, you know, the earlier usually get the most creativity out of it mm -hmm. to me that i don't know i feel like i have more creativity at night for some reason because then i my body is just kind of gone and then i have it but like I, all of a sudden i was just i woke up i went to work i was sitting doing something all of a sudden just bing oh my gosh i need to write this down i'm like crap <laughs> i'm working i can't write this down i gotta do this first you know so it just yeah, it's crazy to think about that so what what made you decide to go with the cthulhu theme because i mean obviously it's always going to be popular, but you know, why did you decide that this is the perfect fit for this game? Uh, it was that the back and forth, the, the very like head to head nature of the concepts that I put together. Um, usually when I come up with a concept, there is already a theme to it. This was a rare one where it was very, uh, very abstract when I put everything together and I kind of like sat down and thought, you know, what are two things that are diametrically opposed uh, that have, you know, they basically want to succeed, but they're kind of head to head against each other. And Cthulhu kind of like, you know, sprung to mind as, as the first kind of go to for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, like having a cultist and investigator, they're very much opposed to each other, but also, you know, that was a, an IP that's accessible. It's not something where I have to pay you know, five grand for or something crazy like that. So um, it was financially and thematically something that fit very well. Yeah, plus in situations like that, uh, you know, as opposed to like trying to create a new IP, you know, 
sometimes the hook of something familiar with a new aspect is uh, the better way to go, you know? Yeah, it was our, our first chance to like kind of bring in something that is known for people. Uh, and I, I wanted a way to kind of like flesh out our catalog a little bit more, like have the different offerings of, of game types. And there's an artist that I've been wanting to work with for quite a while. Uh, the artist that's actually doing the art for uh, for uh, the Seals of Cthulhu. And I thought, you know, this would be a, my chance to be able to work with him and uh, get him doing some stuff. Yeah, it's like, because um, just like on the uh, that notion of like, you know, the familiar IP with something different. Um, you ever hear of the game Unspeakable Words? Yes. Yeah, it's essentially like the Cthulhu word game. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, uh, when we look at like ideas like that, where it's like, you know, like, oh, like, you know, the Cthulhu thing's played out or like this and that. Sometimes like, you know, that different take, it it works out pretty well. You know, like Don't Mess with Cthulhu is one of my favorite like hidden trait, you know, like who's right. the uh, the outside man games. Unspeakable Words is really fun. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't think Cthulhu has hit the realm of Vikings or zombies yet. Right. Where, <laughs> where it's just an arbitrary reason for the game market now. Well, I think some people will have a problem with Cthulhu stuff if it looks all the same. Uh, and that was one yeah. of the things that was really important for me on the look of this game was to have something that didn't fit the mold of everything that's been done. You know, I didn't want something that looked like Fantasy Flight's, you know, Arkham series. I didn't want to look like something that you'd seen in every single comic book that's out there. Uh, I didn't want something super cartoony. Uh, I wanted something that kind of stand, stood out as unique and, and interesting looking. Because if you go, if you read through a lot of uh, Lovecraft stories, they're really vague about what these creatures look like. People have kind of assigned a, a certain idea or, or visual look to them, but there's you can take it any which way you want to go. You can go wherever you want with it. And uh, the interesting thing about the artist, uh, Sun Duong, that he's doing all the character and creature art, he had actually never heard of Cthulhu before. He had no knowledge at all, which to me was crazy because a lot of his art is very dark. I mean, he does a lot of character caricature stuff of you know, actual paintings of people, but he does some really, really dark stuff. And I'm like, what? You've never heard of Cthulhu? Really? Okay. Uh, well, that's great because I want you to bring your fresh take to this. And so I would write up descriptions of what I thought these things could look like or elements that they could have. And I wanted to kind of like basically sprinkle some dust in his, his creative mind, like, okay, now go make magic. And he really did. He brought some really cool stuff. And he was really worried that they were too far out there, uh, too far you know, away from what people expect. I'm like, no, 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 no go there, you know, go with what people aren't expecting. And so far I've had through all of our play tests and, and people that have uh, seen the game, they responded really well to that going, yeah, it really, really does look different and it's really cool looking. What did you want him to go for then? We were kind of talking about it a little bit, but you know, what's, what's the exact art style that you wanted for this? Is it something more of like a, you know, a dark, like hand painted thing, you know, or, you know, what kind of concept did you want exactly for the art? I didn't give him a whole, much of a box to work in. Mm -hmm. um, I just gave him some, some text about what they look like, but the rest I'm like, it's up to you. I want to see where you take this. And then once he started showing me some, uh, some sketches and whatnot, I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. I like this element. This piece isn't, you know, really working that well. I mean, sort of 
kind of organically created that look. Uh, and then once we kind of solidified it, uh, he was really wanting to kind of go with more of a painterly watercolor look. This is the gate. So all of the portraits, uh, all the character art and, and item art, um, they're all hand-painted watercolor art. And he takes those and then he scans them into Photoshop and manipulates them a little bit and color corrects and things like that. But it really gives everything this kind of ephemeral, uh, mystical kind of look and feel to it, which I really, really dig. So when it comes to the gameplay, you know, how, how did that shape out then? So, you, you know, you talked about a little bit about it before. It's like you have something that I want. I have something that you want. So obviously you're getting something to create something that gets you either more victory points or gets you more powerful stuff. So kind of take us through what this game really is about. Sure. So uh, each there's a cultist and an investigator. It's a two-player game. Uh, so each player has six cards in their hands, and they have exact copies, relatively, of those cards in their hands. So we'll take a look at the uh, the investigator card here, investor version of the gate. So their version of this gate, notice that you have half of the art on your card, right? So this number here, this one, that's how many control points or victory points that you get at the end of the game for having that. So not much for the investigator. But uh, the second number, this five here, that is how much it is worth when they're using it to try and get control of other things, to actually get other cards out there. They know that the, uh, the cultist really wants this card and it's valuable to them. So it's really worth a lot by being able to give it away. We'll look at the cultist version. And their version here is worth five victory points, but it's only worth one for their use of, of that, actually spending it. So they know it's more likely that they're going to play it and try and hold and keep control of it. Now, the other thing that kind of muddles things up and keeps the game interesting is that each card has a special ability, but to have, use those abilities, you have to complete the artifact. You have to marry it together, and then you get to do what the card says. So you have, at the very beginning of the game, you have perfect information about what the other player has. What you don't know is what they're going to be playing. So the way you play is you put a card face down. Or face down, we'll do this. And then you would take, now I've got these little uh, wood meeples here, but they're going to be different things for uh, for the game. So let's, uh, let's say I'm the cultist. I've got my card. I'm putting something face down. You don't know what it is, but I have to put out a certain number of, of these little meeple guys here. Basically, what I'm willing to give to you in order to turn this card face up and have control of it in the game. Now, that's where the sort of like manipulating each other and trying to like outwit each other kind of comes into play because you may say, well, you know, I'm going to give you two of these meeple guys uh, in order to get this. And you're like, you know what? No, I, it seems like a lot. I'm going to go three and you can put in three of yours. As long as you are bidding at least one higher, uh, you can try and get control of it. Well, then I can try and go over the top of you as well. So there's kind of this bidding war back and forth and who's really willing to kind of go all in to try and get something. And once uh, once that's resolved, then the person that uh, gives away all their meeples, uh, the other person gets the card. Now later on, uh, let's say, talking about the uh, investigators here, they know that it's worth five. So the next time that the investigator goes to bid or is bidding in the middle of a card, let's say the cultist goes, ah, I'm going to put this card out and I'm, I'm bidding two. Well, 
the investigator can go, yeah, I'm going to use my card here. I'm going to bid this because it's worth five. So all of a sudden, the, the stakes are now like way higher, and but you're giving away that card to the other player. So you have to kind of think about, well, what am I, what am I really willing to give away that could potentially be used against me? Um, the cultist cards, most of them are about turning things face up, about trying to bring things into the world. The investigator's cards are more about uh, turning things face down and stopping things from happening. I just have a question. So you know how most Cthulhu games, there's always something with sanity in it? Is your mm-hmm. game going to have anything to do with sanity? Because I know with unspeakable words, when you lose sanity, you can basically make up your own, right? Yeah. Make your own words. And then... Just like the Arkham Horror games Arkham where Horror it's like another sanity. lost condition. Yes. Uh, that was something I kind of thought about, um, and I'm contemplating for uh, an expansion, but in the base game, I didn't want to have that. Uh, there was already um, enough kind of going on with trying to outwit the opponent through the bidding process, uh, when to trigger the abilities of your cards, and also worrying about the different uh, negative effects of some of the creatures. So with all that kind of going on, I wanted to keep the game approachable and I've been able to demo with lots of different people, and usually, I mean, it's, it's surprisingly thinky. Uh, it plays out in about 20 minutes, but uh, people are like, wow, I, I, this was a lot more thinky than I kind of expected. Um, so the other, most of the cards are good. They've got a, a positive victory point value and a positive currency value. But the Elder Gods, and we'll use the Shoggoth here, uh, he is worth minus three victory points. So he's not very useful to have uh, on your side. But he is worth three uh, when you go to bid with him. So he's very, very useful. Um, the danger is that if you if you manage to give someone both halves of him, his ability is he's going to turn half of the one of those face down. So let's say I've got him completed. I've got negative six victory points. That kind of sucks for me. So what I can do is I can turn one of these face down now that I've completed him, and then I can turn another player's card face down. So I get rid of their victory points get rid of my negative three, and then I can continue bidding with this guy. So it gives you a lot of power, a lot of more to kind of think about, like, when do I want to use this guy? Because you can only use card powers on your turn. So you've only got five turns in the game, so when you want to use that, it's really important. Uh, I've, had, I've had games where I've gotten stuck with him, and I didn't use him in time, and so I end up with negative six victory points at the end of the game. Like, oh, I was a beating. I should use this earlier. Yeah, I like I like how even with your game, you're like, oh, I'm I'm gonna I actually got stuck with the worst amount of points. <laughs> Plus, I also love the fact that it, in true Lovecraftian style or whatever, using you know using these elder gods and stuff like that is is bad. You know, it's always bad news. You know, it's like I want all the power, but you 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 don't realize you're using these beings that are gonna you know corrupt you, possibly take yep. take control of you, kill you, or whatever. But then you've got the side of you've got these meeples that you're using that you're like, yeah, I'll give you these. Yeah, just take these guys. I don't care about these guys. You know, they're green. Nobody cares about green guys. My team, whatever. I'll take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, Cthulhu's power is pretty crazy, so you can't have a Cthulhu game without Mr. Cthulhu here. His ability, he is worth six victory points on each card, so a total of 12 but he's only worth one to bid. So he's actually 
go up there. Uh, so he's not very useful to bid with, but if you trigger him, what happens is you lose all of your non-Cthulhu cards that are on out in front of you. They all just go away. He just, he's a world destroyer, right? So that made thematic sense. But you've got 12 victory points. So if you can somehow trigger him early enough, you might be able to survive the rest of the game. But if the other player is able to like turn one of those face down, you just start losing cards pretty quickly. Or, worst case, uh, one of them gets turned face down and then gets turned face back up again, and he obliterates your field again. So cards can, there's a lot of uh, back and forth card play between cards getting turned face down and then face back up and re-initializing and using those powers again. So it could almost be like a strategy to let your opponent get the Cthulhu. Oh, yeah. Knowing that you can do it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. Basically, trigger a nuke on him. (laughs) So besides uh, Cthulhu and Shagath, are there any other Elder guys that are making appearances in this game? Uh, yes, so there's actually a bunch of different ones. Um, there are going to be stretch goals in the game. Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, Neurolithotep. Uh, we've got Shabnigarov, uh, Azathoth, Hester. Hester is one of my favorites. Uh, we've got uh, Yogsathoth. Um, and yeah, H- Hester. So I'll tell you about his ability. Uh, so Hester came up here. Here's his half, half of his art. So he's three victory points, and he's worth three when you use him for bidding. So he's actually beneficial to have. Uh, the downside is that if you bring him into existence, he destroys one of your cards at the end of your turn. Each turn, he just kind of chews away and chews away. But you can bid with him. So if you manage to like trigger him and then bid entirely with him, you're bidding six away. So that's a really hard number to try and avoid, so you can force a player that maybe only has really high victory point cards, you can force them to have to start burning those away because they've got this guy, Mr. sticking around. Yeah, I kind of like those uh, that concept, though, because most of the games are usually just like, you know, like self-point driven. Very few games have that option of like strategically giving your opponents the edge just for, you know, the whole sake of like, oh, you like that card, do you? Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> guess what yeah, it's like, I don't know it's, it's like uh, you know I mean when you mentioned even before like when making magic decks and stuff like that I've I've always enjoyed something where it's like look you got the thing that you wanted now you're going to re- regret that decision for the remainder of this play right <laughs> yeah and even if a player gets into a bad spot uh, there's only you know a total of 10 turns you know each player gets 5 it goes quick enough they're like okay well I see where I screwed up. Let's play again. You know, it was only 15, 20 minutes long. We'll, we'll play a second time. Um, I had two players that did two games back-to-back, and their, their second game, once they both sort of really understood how the how the game plays and the intricacies and the thought processes, these guys were like like hardcore players, right? So they, they got it. And their second game was just cutthroat, and they ended up with a one-point split between them. And they were actually using Cthulhu, and one of the guys had triggered it, and uh, he, he he had Cthulhu triggered on him, but he was actually able to survive it and come away with one point, uh, one point victory swing. Like that was amazing to see. It was just so like so tight and so back and forth. I was gonna say, uh, would you say the mark for like most like the take that style games or like uh, like the twisted play like that? Usually, if the game ends, is met with like, oh my god, I hate this game. Let's play again. <laughs> right. That to me is usually the sign of like, uh, you know, like when the, the vicious moves in the game are 
they make sense or they work out well for the length, you know? Like, as yeah. you mentioned, like, you said, so the average play time of this is around, like, 15, 20 minutes, right? Yeah, so that works out really well for games like that because uh, nobody likes to spend 45 minutes to, to get undone by their own plans. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if it happens and there's still, like, 15 minutes left on that show on Netflix or something like that, it's like, all right, let's do it again. Yeah. <laughs> I see where you got me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try up something different. You know, I'm going to try a different strategy. Uh, there was one player that, that told me that he thought it didn't really matter uh, what your opening card was, like the first card that you play. I'm like, I completely disagree. Having played this, you know, hundreds of times, the card that you open with is really going to dictate the next turn that you're going to be taking because if you win it, that is more that you're going to have available to you to try and bid and gain control over your opponent's card. So there's a lot of, like, trying to get into the other player's head. Like I said, you know what, what each card that the player has, right? So as you start playing those, those are turned face up, unless someone turned it face down. Um, so you can start to get an idea of like, well, he's got three cards left. It's, you know, this, this, or this. So what is he most likely to play based on what he's got out in front of him that I can try and take advantage of? You know, do I really want to let him tap this? Eh, I can take the risk. But maybe when it's down to two, you're like, well, crap, it's going to be one or the other. What's strategically better for him? How can I maneuver around that? So anybody else have any other questions? I I feel like I'm just plumb out. I feel like I've talked <laughs> talked your head off. I feel like I've taken control of this whole episode. I'm glad Dan and Tim have actually got some questions in at the end. Speaking of which, I, I apologize in advance. Uh, we got a new fur baby added to the family. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, so we just have to make sure that he doesn't kill the other uh, fur baby that we have. Or, you know, do things like, oh, this wire looks delicious. So we've been... <laughs> We've been having to chase him around just a little bit throughout the recording, and I apologize for that. Oh, that's awesome. That's really okay. I've got a, I've got two dogs at home, and they like to eat socks, uh, which is really annoying because we'll find that they've eaten socks when we got into the yard. Like, oh, there's that missing sock. That's yeah, unfortunate. I know you gotta love that kind of stuff. I remember my brother, my brother-in-law. He got a dog, and the first thing that it did was eat eat his daughter's underwear. And then proceed to throw it up like 15 minutes later. I'm like, boy, I love dogs. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. So, so out of curiosity, what is the chance that a stretch goal might be a, a dog card where it's a 50-50 whether or not he destroys something on your side of the field or your opponent's? A doggo card? Yeah. <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah. Like, like doggo destroyer of all. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then after that, maybe? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> oh. that was, the, uh, the art aspect was kind of a, an interesting challenge for the artist because with one exception, there's one card in the game that actually has all of the art uh, on it. Um, all the other art is split in half. And so for him, he, he told me it was like, that was a real struggle to try and work around from just laying out the design because I had to make sure that the art made sense visually when you chop it in half and you're only getting to see half of an image. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of things you had to just kind of throw away because you only saw like parts of, of things kind of coming in from the side. And he's like, you don't know what this is. This is a terrible, I could go back and, you know, try again. True. So and you don't want it to be like too symmetrical where, exactly. you know, it's just like, it's just like each half is the exact same thing as the other. So yeah, totally. So we've talked about this before. You were kind of leaning towards a end of May-ish uh, start for your Kickstarter. So have you come with the, come to that decision yet, or are we going to have yeah. to 
Lay it in suspense. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. We, we've actually uh, locked in a date now. We're looking at May 22nd. Uh, Tuesday, May 22nd. Nice. Probably. Nice. We typically do around 10 o'clock in the morning so that we can be out there for the East Coast people that are just going to lunch. They'll be able to like, see our, our game uh, out and available. So, Awesome. And then uh, what are we looking at for price point then? Uh, price point... Uh, I don't think we come to a complete conclusion on that. Um, I want to say that it's going to be under 20. How much? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, we're still getting some bids from different manufacturers. Um, and for all the different things that we want to have in the game and the way that we want to present the game, um, we don't want it to just be, hey, look, there's a game inside of a tuck box. Personally, I hate tuck boxes. Uh, they always end up getting destroyed and torn, and you get frustrated and like whatever. Um, we want this to have a much more, a really interesting and thematic look to it. We want this to kind of feel like an experience, not just you know kind of run of the mill like whatever off the shelf you know kind of game. So there's some really interesting things that we're going to add into this game uh, that people will be kind of surprised to see. And we have a couple of stretch goals that are there'll be surprises that people will get when they get their game and they open it up and be like, oh, what's this thing? This is this is interesting. So, And I haven't told anybody what they are. <laughs> Kurt, I'm calling it right now. It's Doggo the Destroyer. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to have to pay a little extra for that, Dan, I think. <laughs> it's going to be hidden underneath the card, uh, like, you know, like, the thing that the cards lay on, just like the yeah, you know, yeah, all those other legacy games, everything else. That's where it'll be. It's exactly. Be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, you're just gonna have to wait until May 22nd. You're just gonna have to get on Kickstarter, look for the seals of Cthulhu to see what kind of interesting things will be awry, and you know what's going to be included in your copy. I'm excited about it because I, I don't know, I. I love the Cthulhu theme. There's a lot of stuff. It seems to be kind of like the thing lately, but still I like all the aspects where people are going with it. And I like, I like how this game kind of works out because I like the, you know, the bidding aspect, but I also kind of like the take that aspect too. So it's going to be cool to see how that all plays out. So Sean, it's good to finally talk to you, man. It's, this has been a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again. Awesome. Yeah, totally. Anytime you want to have me on, it doesn't have to be just to talk about my games. I just talk about in this design in general or, you know, the new hotness or whatever. I'd be happy to come on your show. I uh, love uh, getting to talk to you guys. So it was awesome. Thank you. Awesome. You betcha. So again, make sure May 22nd, go back at Think 12 Games, The Seals Cthulhu. So until next time, I'm Kurt. This is D. Wyatt. This is Kim. And Sean this Everton. was... Oh, God oh, dang it, I did it again. Twice. I gotta stop doing yeah. that. <laughs> like, you yes. don't get to say goodbye. I know, I know. <laughs> One of these days I'll get it. God bless it. Oh. That was great. All right, bye. <laughs> Legends of Tabletop Podcast. Creating legends one die at a time.